Professor R.G. Hillis is a professor of neurology at John Hopkins School of Medicine with joint faculty appointments in physical medicine and rehabilitation and in cognitive science at John Hopkins University. Dr. Hillis serves as the ex executive chair of the Department of Neurology, director of the Neurology Residency Program and the co-director of the Cerebrovascular Division of Neurology at John Hopkins. Professor Hillis spoke to Carmen Leif Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke, covering topics such as neurology and crossover with speech therapy, and gave an outline of her keynote speech at the Stroke Society Australasia meeting in Adelaide 2011. I was talking about the mechanisms of stroke recovery, and I was illustrating the different mechanisms through aphasia recovery, because that's my particular research interest and clinical interest as well. And there are different types of mechanisms of aphasia recovery that take place over different periods of time. And I was trying to make the point that aphasia recovery takes place over one's lifetime. It never really ends after stroke. Um, early recovery over the first few days or even weeks after stroke, mostly is tissue reperfusion, that is we restore blood flow to various areas of the brain and that makes the tissue function itself recovery and then language recovers because the tissue recovers. But then starting in the first few days, weeks and months and even continuing over years after stroke, there's reorganization of structure function relationships, that is other parts of the brain take over function of the damaged parts. So the right hemisphere, for example, can take over functions of the damaged left hemisphere or undamaged parts of the left hemisphere can take over for damaged parts of the left hemisphere. It really depends on the size of the stroke, the site of the stroke, and what language functions we're talking about. The, the right hemisphere doesn't like to do certain language functions like spelling, but it will take over other language functions. Um, and then for months and years and perhaps the rest of one's lifetime, one can recover from language impairment through compensation or um, even reorganization of cognitive function, that is how we actually do language. And so I was illustrating with a couple of cases. So could you outline one of those cases? I know one was about taking patients to restaurants and sort of, you know, putting their skills to the test. Could you mm -hmm. explain that? Sure. So I was talking about uh, two, two of my patients who illustrated um, different uh, types of uh, chronic recovery. One of them was a patient who had um, learned to actually do language in a different way. That is, she was able to um, write some words, but she, and she could articulate a few words, but she had really lost language itself. She had lost how, her vocabulary. So she only had about 16 words that she said fluently, and she, could, she said, this is the thing I did over there, this is the thing I did over there, this is the thing. But she completely had lost how, the pronunciation of words and she had to relearn how to pronounce words. So you couldn't just have her repeat a word like um, 
pizza. She couldn't really hear it. She couldn't process it. Um, so if she heard the word pizza, and you said, you said, repeat the word pizza, she would say, this is the thing I did over there. You could write it out, P-I-Z-A, and she could read it, but she would print she actually learned to pronounce each letter at a time. And so she would pronounce it pizza. And so you had, in order to actually teach her how to pronounce pizza, you would have to misspell it regularly, like P-E-E-T-S-A, pizza. And then she would say pizza. And she would memorize that P-I-Z-Z-A is actually pronounced P-E-E-T-S-A. And she would actually learn pizza. So she would come in and tell me words she wanted to learn to pronounce. And we eventually taught her the vocabulary. So I took her to a restaurant to test her skills, and I made her order everything from the restaurant. And she got through the entire dinner very well, and the, the waitress understood everything. And finally, she got to the end of the meal, and she ordered coffee very well, and the waitress understood, and then she wanted sugar. And she said, she didn't even have to write out the word. She would just picture the spelling of the word. And she, she said she wanted sugar. Now, if you knew how she had learned, was relearning language, you would know that she wanted sugar. Because you could picture your S-U-G-A-R. So I knew she wanted sugar, but I wasn't going to help her. So she... She didn't get sugar because the waitress couldn't understand sugar. So the, um, the waitress just looked confused, and my patient then said, hmm, sweet and low. <laughs> and she got sweet and low, and that was close enough for her. Um, but other patients can actually learn. The language is still in there, and they just have to get at it a different way. And so another patient had the opposite problem. She could say words, but she couldn't write them. Um, so she would um, actually write an entire sentence out, but leave out the verb. And so she would write, I waited at the bank for an hour, but leave out the word waited. And she would leave a blank for it, and she'd say, I want to write the word waited here. So she had to learn also, learn to phonics, like you would teach a child phonics to learn to... Um, spell, write the word P for P and W for W. But once she, she would do that, she would write out just the W for weighted, and then she'd remember, that would cue her to write out the whole word, W-A-I-T-E-D. And she never, she didn't have to go through the entire word, so the word was still in there. She didn't misspell it. It was still in her brain somewhere that she had stored the, these, this lexicon of words, but she had to get at it another way. So it, that just illustrates there's different ways. Um, what In one case, the patient was relearning language, a whole, she had to relearn a vocabulary of spelled words, uh, or of, of pronounced words. In the other case, the spellings of words were still in her brain, and she just had to get at it in a different way. So I noticed in your bio that you were interested in, um, you were initially a speech therapist, and mm -hmm. obviously you developed an interest in stroke and therefore neurology, I'm mm -hmm. assuming that's how it went. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how that all came about? Yeah, so I was. I was a speech pathologist for 10 years, actually, and worked with mostly aphasic patients, uh, stroke patients, and 
obviously I still use that in my practice of neurology, but I, I wanted to, about that time, people were just beginning to realize maybe we could actually treat stroke at the beginning. TPA hadn't come out then, but people were beginning to think there might be medical treatments for stroke um, to prevent the stroke from getting worse. Um, and I thought I wanted to, to really be part of that. I was doing a lot of research in aphasia, and I also wanted to um, both do, take care of patients clinically and do research the rest of my life um, and be part of making, their, um, making, them, making them better. And I thought if I could be in on it from the beginning and, and kind of um, be part of that, uh, medical management from the very beginning, I might be able to um, make even more of a difference. Um, also, I was frustrated with neurologists who told them that they weren't going to get any better three months after, or six months, or a year later, and I wanted to be there and to tell them that, you know, you really can keep improving for the rest of your life, or I've seen it happen. Um, you, you talk us about mechanics. What other mechanics do you employ in terms of rehabilitation? So one of the things um, I was talking about reorganization of structure-function relationships and some of the other things that we use to augment the language therapy um, include medications that um, facilitate synaptic plasticity. So the mechanism underlying reorganization of structure-function relationships is that the neurons, how the neurons interact in the brain is through synaptic plasticity, and these require neurotransmitters. Um, and these neurotransmitters are um, things like norepinephrine and serotonin and dopamine, and these are all affected by medications. And so many of the common medications that we use to treat um, um, even uh, antidepressants, for example, may actually help rehabilitation, may actually facilitate rehabilitation. And so those are being used in clinical trials to um, see if they can augment um, speech-language therapy, physical therapy, and so occupational therapy. In addition, there's something called transcranial magnetic stimulation and trans transcranial um, direct current stimulation, which are is a, a very easily tolerated electrical stimulation on the brain, which used in conjunction with language therapy, can augment um, synaptic plasticity um, and may actually facilitate this ability of the brain for other areas of the brain to, to take over the function of the damaged part. So this is, these are pretty investigational things, but there are things that are, these are studies that are going on right now. And you, did, you also mentioned some medications that inhibited rehabilitation. Right. Um, so medications um, that are used for um, anxiety, to sedate patients, um, even some of our blood pressure medications um, can um, actually inhibit synaptic plasticity. And so we just have to be very careful about what medications we're giving on rehabilitation units. Um, we don't want to inhibit any kind of um, progress. Uh, we just have to, have to be careful about their side effects. And so you were saying there are clinical trials on drugs that do, uh, that do have benefits and outcomes and good outcomes. Uh, are there also trials on those 
drugs that may necessarily um, be negative in the process of rehabilitation, or would that come out? Well, you wouldn't want to do a trial. You wouldn't have get approval to do a trial on the negative effects because you would uh, necessarily be sort of randomizing people to a tri to a, a drug that you think would have a negative effect, and nobody would sign up to do that trial. <laughs> um, so there aren't those t types of studies. They've mostly been done um, in terms of it's been discovered through epidemiological studies that they see people who have they've been studied retrospectively that they've seen people who are on these drugs tend to do worse. Okay. Maggie, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. You are listening to an International Journal of Stroke podcast collaboration between International Journal of Stroke and the Stroke Society Australasia. The International Journal of Stroke is the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organization. Please consider becoming a member.